0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show, another exciting episode we have for you today. I'm Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group. I'm joined by my co-host Rob hunt and our uh, third co-host Jim Marty is taking vacation this week so good for Jim hope he's having a fun and relaxing time wherever he is and he will be back with us on the show next week we have an excellent guest who we'll get to in one minute Alex beard who is a uh, an artist but artist probably isn't really the right word for it and you'll find out when we get to him uh, uh, Alex uh, is not only an artist he travels the world he's a huge deadhead uh, he has uh, had the opportunity to have conversations with John Perry Barlow about life and all sorts of great things and has some wonderful stories uh, to share with us today.
1: Rob, how are you doing? Really good, Larry. Thanks for asking. Uh, Excited to have Alex on the show today. Excited to talk about all the the fun things in Grateful Dead World and what's happening in the canvas world.
0: Yeah, me too. And let's start off by saying this. Thank God. Live music. Fish has announced a tour. It's coming up uh, over the summer, and then they're going to uh, pick it up again in the fall. Uh, It looks like they've got themselves planned uh, pretty much uh, into November. Uh, Probably give them enough time just to get back ready for New Year's again, but the fact that there's live fish out there is very exciting, and... The added bonus that I hadn't counted on was we had tickets to see them last summer on their summer tour when they were going to be playing at Deer Creek. When I saw the tour notice, my thought was, oh boy, here we go. Okay, I got to go order my tickets. And then I saw at the bottom if you had tickets for last year, you're going to be able to use them for this year so i called my buddy who got the tickets he had already checked into it we're all set for the saturday and sunday night show at deer creek in august looking forward to that and uh finally to have some good live music to look forward to is a, a very positive thing um so that's wonderful Number two, uh, just worth mentioning at the beginning of our show today, is that uh, this past week, the music world mourned the passing of Lloyd Price. Lloyd was a blues man uh, who played uh, in the uh, 1920s, 30s, 40s, um, and is generally credited uh, with writing, if not the original version, certainly a recorded version of the Dead song, well, the song of the Dead ultimately recorded, Stagger Lee. Um, it's a fun story of uh, of a guy who owns a, uh, a bar and uh, a big uh, tough guy comes in and they get into a game of dice and there's a winner and somebody gets shot and the wife comes to seek revenge. And uh, Jerry uh, told the story as well as anybody in his uh, version of it. Uh, but uh, in fact, um, it just goes to show, I think, how diverse – the Grateful Dead songbook is and where they reached for the music that they ultimately played that, uh, you know, a guy like Lloyd Price, who had heard of Lloyd Price before? Well, obviously they had, um, and they had heard of him enough that uh, they were able to take his music and uh, you know, turn it into a version of a song that they liked and that uh, Dead fans have loved for years and years. Um, and so that's worth noting. And, uh, you know, we've lost a lot of uh, famous musicians this year and more than a few uh, People who have had some connection to the dead family, and uh, and Lloyd is certainly one of them. So, um, uh, obviously, uh, we mourn his passing, and um, uh, go home and listen to another version of Stagger Lee. Uh, one other thing, just worth throwing out here, quick before we turn things over to uh, to our guest Alex today, we've been uh, we've been following the 49th anniversary of Europe 72, and uh, today's a momentous day, uh, so, uh, May 12th. Uh, yesterday, May 11th, um, the dead did a show in uh, um, where do we say it was Alex?
2: I think they were in the Netherlands yesterday. And if, yeah, if it wasn't yesterday, it was
0: the day before. It was yesterday. Thank you. The Netherlands. Uh, and I can't even pronounce the name of the, 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 the building that they played in, but it's some 2200 person orchestra hall that was supposedly beautifully done in one of the nicest places they had ever played. And that's Dick Lavatla's favorite show of Europe 72. And, and well, it should be, it's got a massive dark star right in the middle of it. It's got some great stuff to it. Uh, it really plays out well at the end. Um, and uh, it's a long show. So it's, it's, it's well worth listening to if you're on the road and you've got the time to just listen to a to a great show from start to finish. Tomorrow night, the 13th, is my favorite show of Europe 72, and that's the show they recorded in Lille, France. Um, and the fun part about Lille, France is it's got this great backstory to it. They were supposed to have played there a week or two before after they played their two shows in Paris, including the May 4th show, which may have the best dark star of all time on it. Um but while their equipment was in Paris, they had moved on to Lille to get ready. Uh, but somehow somebody in the crew, I don't remember if it was Ramrod or or, or uh, 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 Rex Jackson or whoever the other guys in, in, the, uh, in the crew were, one of them had, had encountered a young leftist radical who had been at the show in Paris and uh, left him outside uh, kind of dazed and confused. And to seek revenge, he went and took sugar and poured it in the gas tank of the Dead's equipment truck. So while the dead were sitting in Little France, supposedly getting ready to play a concert, they couldn't get their equipment there. Uh, They ran into a problem because the promoter wouldn't agree to give a refund to the crowd, and the crowd literally chased the dead into the back dressing room of the theater where they were going to play, and they had to sneak out of the bathroom window to get out of there. Uh, Bob Weir left some little note about how we'll be back, and they went off to the continent to play uh, more shows on the tour. But on the 13th, they were able to swing back, and they actually played the show at little although this time it was outdoors. So they were able to accommodate the original crowd and a lot more um it, it's, it's a great, great show. And like we talked about last week with uh, Dick's Picks 38, uh, although that's a, a 73 show, this is a 72 show. This is a show that's still very much uh, within the, um, the rhythm and the feel of Skull and Roses. And we keep dancing around Skull and Roses and it's 50th anniversary. We will get to it eventually. Uh, but this opens up with Bertha Like Skull and Roses and has a great version of it in there uh, that just works really, really well. It's got a tremendous other one jam in there. Uh, 28 minutes. You don't really need a dark star when you have a 28 minute other one jam. But like any you know good dead show from that era, it winds down with an amazing not fade going down the road, not fade. And it's just... Uh, you know, songs that you think I've heard them play so many times over and over, they're always there. And yet when you listen to this version of it, it really reminds you why you can never hear it enough. Um, and it's just, it's that good. So, uh, that's what we have kind of going on in the live music uh, scene. But Rob, let's, uh, let's bring you in for a minute because, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about the dead and their artistic tendencies, uh, then our guest today is a perfect fit for our show. And you're probably the best person to introduce him. So please go ahead.
1: Yeah, thanks, Larry. Uh, yeah, we're really lucky to have uh, an old, old friend of mine, uh, Alex Beard, joining us, who is a really well-known artist that resides in New Orleans. Uh, I've watched Alex's career over the last 20 years and watched him turn into uh, really incredible works of art uh, I wish the, uh, the audience could see just what we're seeing in the background behind Alex of one of his paintings But anyone that's in New Orleans I, I highly recommend you go by and see his studio and go check out his work or go online and uh, Get a chance to really see what he's done But Alex it's a, a pleasure having you uh, as a, a friend as a deadhead as a, You know someone that I think would be able to contribute a great deal to this conversation today. So uh, so welcome to the show
2: well, it's a, it's a great honor of mine to be here with you all. Robbie. the only place I think I'd rather be is in a, in a, in a, in a fishing boat looking for some bluefish out by the race. So <laughs> beyond that, this is as good as it gets.
1: Yeah, and I'm hoping we're going to get a chance to do that this summer. You missed an amazing fall run last year on the island uh, where uh, it was just spectacular off of Montauk. The fishing was just unbelievable. And, and speaking of fishing, on the other side, Larry, I am very excited for Fish Tour as uh, it is probably the closest thing I've ever seen fish do to a, a true California West Coast tour where I've got, you know, eight shows within a few hours of my house. And I broke it to my wife last night that, unfortunately, honey, I'm going to be on Fish Tour at the end of October. Uh, I hope you're okay with that. And her answer to me was, well, that's fine. What's in it for me? Do I get to take a five-day vacation with my friends? And uh, I'm said, I'm sure we can work something out after uh after I, I do my trip, <laughs> so
0: <laughs> everything within time and reason. That's right. Yeah. So,
1: so I figure I'm at least speaking for uh, the Chula Vista show and the uh, the the Thomas and Mac, excuse me the uh, the MGM Grand shows and then potentially Harvey's Casino up in uh, Tahoe. But there's a few others as well. But it should be a really fun October. And then speaking of October music as well, as we get uh, Alex involved in this conversation, I think we should also touch on. Um, what's happening in New Orleans in his neck of the woods for, uh, for Jazz Fest this year. Now that we know Jazz Fest is back on for October. And I know Alex has been many, many times. So kicking it off, Alex, why don't you uh, give a little bit of, you know, background and, and I know you do have a connection directly to the Grateful Dead in your friendship with John Perry Barlow before he passed. Uh, maybe you can you know, start off by kind of talking about uh, a, your affinity with the Grateful Dead and b your relationship with John.
2: Okay. So um, yeah, let's, let's start with my affinity for the Grateful Dead.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> I'm one of those who grew up listening to the dead, uh, not willingly. Um, I went to a summer camp up in Maine, and when I was, you know, eight, nine years old, something like that, so that's 78, 79, right in that sort of... Chewonkie? No, uh, Wild Goose. And our cabin counselor woke us up every day with fire on the mountain, and... Uh, for, for, you know, eight weeks of summer, something like that, up at Great Moose Lake in the middle of the trees. And so at first, we were all, oh, God, fire on the mountain again. And all of a sudden, uh, the entire cabin was sort of a bunch of little munchkin deadheads running around. <laughs> <laughs> and so I then went off to boarding school, and of course, you know, in the, in the mid-'80s, and uh, that was almost part of the curriculum. Um, And so I would, uh, uh, you know, obviously listen to the the traded bootlegs that went, went around the dorms every evening. And then our spring break was always in line with the Dead's East Coast tour that would start at just about the same time, usually at the Omni in Atlanta, right? So you'd hit the Omni, and then you'd hit Hampton, and then you'd... Sometimes they'd end up in Maryland, and sometimes they'd end up in New Jersey and whatever. So you'd make your way up the coast... And, you know, you could catch seven, eight, nine shows over the course of a two-and-a-half-week spring break, and we all went en masse. Um, in fact, one year, and I don't want to get too sidetracked on all of this, but one year we had a, uh, an exchange student from Ghana who um, not only had never heard of The Grateful Dead but had never uh, left Ghana before, and he had no place to go for spring break, so we put him in my old... Gray station wagon, which was called the Road Rhino, a 1984 <laughs> Caprice classic, and we drove down. We taught him to swim at Disney World, and then we hit seven or eight shows coming up the East Coast. And as far as I know, William Dakwa is the the, the, the greatest deadhead in Ghana. <laughs> so spreading the spreading the love all over the world. My connection with um, with Barlow ironically, falls outside of the, the direct confines of the Grateful Dead, although it's inexorably connected. So I met Barlow for the first time in the early 90s. I had gotten out of college, and when I got out of college, I went to India for six months to write for magazines, which still existed back then, if you can believe it, about uh, searching for a tiger in the wild. And was it possible? for a kid from New York to go to India and just see a tiger in the wild, period, right? I mean, in in 1900, there were 100,000 Bengal tigers in India, and by 1993, there were 3,000 left in the world. And so I took that sort of premise and off I went. And I went and spent six months with malaria and dengue fever and with the backs of elephants traipsing through the jungle looking for tigers. And when I got back, um, I spent a week with a friend of mine, named Jenny Moldar, whose mother was Maria Moldar, and as a result, she was friendly with Barlow, and I I went up to her place in Martha's Vineyard for a week, and Barlow and I met then, and we shared beach chairs, for lack of a better way of putting it, and he was, at the time, uh, you know, remember, I'm writing about conservation and wilderness and wildlife and art, and he was part of a thing called the Writers Group, and there were about 250 of them, and their uh, mission was to keep the internet free. So this was before anybody was really using the internet. It was still sort of, I mean, it existed, but not in any semblance of the way that it came to in, in subsequent years. And he was very interested with this international group of making sure that it wasn't government controlled and it wasn't controlled by single corporate interests, etc. but that rather that it would actually be giving um, everybody in the world Uh, the Library of Alexandria, in their pocket. Um, My side of the coin was that the, the darker, that the deeper that you go into the computer screen, the more it becomes Plato's cave, and that you lose the actual extraordinary beauty of what's right in front of your nose. So Barlow would sit in his beach chair with his laptop, which, at that time had, you know, wireless connection to a satellite and email. I didn't even have a cell phone yet. And he's talking with people in Switzerland or wherever about uh, trying to keep the internet free. And I'm watching the waves crash on the beach and the, the, the sandpipers run back up and forth in front of the washing water and the gulls riding the crest of the wind. And, and I'm saying, Barla, you've got to get your head out of your computer and look up at the beauty that's in front of you. And he was saying, no, 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 Alex, you've got to think that the future is inside the computer screen and that we're not going to be shutting down people's access, but rather opening it up. Now, of course, neither of us were exactly right. It ended up being that we've lost a little bit of our connection with nature uh, through the, I'm not, a, I'm not a Luddite, so it's not that I'm, 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 I'm dissing the internet and technology. But one of the side effects of it, of course, is that there is—it uh, makes it more difficult to actually interact with your environment physically. What does it smell like? What's it sound like? What's it actually feel like to walk through the jungle? Um, and Barlow's version of it uh, was also didn't quite come to pass in the way that he had imagined. Uh, I don't think that um, as a rancher in Wyoming and an old Kennedy hand that he would think that the, 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 the proliferation of lies leading to January the 6th was going to be a logical extension of what he was talking about by keeping the Internet free, right? So it, it was one of those, those pivotal conversations, certainly in my life, um, and he and I discussed it multiple times afterwards, and in his a little bit as well, as to how do you look at the big picture of one of the most fundamental changes in the history of civilization, which we have all just witnessed and are still still witnessing. It's rather interesting. I mean, it took 300 years after Gutenberg figured out about his press for the world to figure out how to communicate again without there being 100 years wars, etc. And we're 20 years into a complete mind shift. Uh, and it makes for, a, you know, it makes for an interesting time and an interesting philosophy. Uh, a philosophical conversation is really what I mean. Now... The thing about Barlow outside of that, that I was particularly drawn to was that his day job at the time, as he described it, was as a cognitive dissident. And he was and in fact it was on his business card. I mean, I can't believe he had a business card, but 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 the fact that, that, that he had, that was what it said on it. And his the way that he was making money at the time was he would go to corporate boardrooms and try to convince corporate America that it was a good idea to give things away. And he used the Grateful Dead's willingness for people to bootleg their concerts as the example for how to build um, a relationship with the public that has long legs. And so I immediately attached myself to that idea because it was one that I already, as an artist sort of espoused, Uh, if you're a young artist out there in the world trying to figure out how do you get people to look at what you make, my recommendation is don't try to charge everybody a trillion dollars and tell them how important you are, but rather make something that they like and then convince them that you're going to give it to them so they can put it on their refrigerator so then they see it every day. And over the course of decades, uh, you know, you build up a relationship with the people that you ultimately want to, which keeps growing and growing and growing, uh, in the same way that the dead did. You have a, give away a little something so that uh, you're more on an equal footing of community and collaboration, participation, uh, as opposed to just proprietary, proprietary, and proprietary.
1: Yeah, that was one of the work he was doing also with the Electronic um, Frontier Foundation, right, for a non-profit digital rights. I know a lot of the work that he was doing was you know, being an advocate for making sure open source was happening throughout the Internet long before anyone was thinking about who was going to actually own portions of the Internet or own por- portions of, uh, of different operating systems. Uh, Barlow kind of saw the future there and uh, advocated for just much more open source among everyone.
2: Yeah, he was, he was really a for- an extraordinary forward-thinking man who uh, had insight into uh, a myriad of topics, uh, all of which were based on a very similar principle, uh, which, which ties directly back to the entire philosophy of the Grateful Dead from the beginning and still.
1: Yeah, I don't think a lot of Deadheads realize that all the other projects that Barlow was involved in, and you know, what a brilliant mind he was, and the fact he was a, a Harvard Law School guy as well, you know, they, make, they just think of him as the guy that wrote Cassidy and Throne Stones, but, uh, but it was you know, really so much more, and anyone that ever got a chance to spend time with John, fortunately I did you know, get a chance to hang out with him a few times, and uh, more when he was kind of doing work with String Cheese Incident than when he was with The Grateful Dead. But, uh, but he was an exceptional man, just a really, really unique person.
2: The other thing about Barlow is that he was an extremely funny and nice man, and his sense of humor was wry, so he could take a, a, a ridiculous situation and sum it up in a, in a look or a phrase uh, and, and really bring a smile to, to everybody's face in a way where you felt like you were on the inside of the joke uh, as opposed to the butt of it. So I'm an admirer of as I miss him. I did a portrait of him, actually, uh, during that week, um, which I still have. I don't have very much of my own art. I, I'm not the guy who puts his own art up all over his own house. But uh, I kept that portrait of Barlow.
1: Well, I think you touched on something that's very consistent among the Grateful Dead uh, and their members and their extended family, is there's a great deal of wit and a great deal of self-deprecating wit that goes along with all those guys, where you've got to be pretty quick on your feet to keep a conversation with a lot of the people that were you know involved in the inner circle of the Grateful Dead, simply because uh, none of them took themselves too seriously, and they thought most of the outside world was relatively absurd, so you know, how do you... Uh, how do you stay on top of all that and tease one another in a way that doesn't, um, uh, you know, have too many barbs attached to it?
2: Well, you know, there's, uh, of course, the idea behind the name of The Grateful Dead dealing with the idea that we're all of us already basically dead and that we've sort of got this little moment of life here that we should enjoy, the, 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 the you know, the fact that it's... Uh, it comes and goes awfully quickly. I, my son, who's about to be 16, is a deadhead, in the way that deadheads can only be a deadhead if you're 16, as in he knows absolutely everything that has ever occurred in Grateful Dead World. And he pointed out to me that the last song that they performed was Box of Rain. And so, you know, you, you, you go out of it with what a long, long time to be gone and a short time to be there. Even that has got a little, a little humor to it.
0: Well, it does. And you know, for that, we really got to thank Phil Lesh. I was at that show. Um, in fact, I was at those last four shows. And by God, um, whether any of us knew the jury was going to die, we sure knew that he sounded like he was going to die for the most part. He, he managed to crank out a really good so many roads the last night at Soldier Field that brought the house down. But he was really hurting. And he played Black Muddy River for the encore of that last show. And, and I'm the kind of guy who goes to a baseball game and I don't care what the score is I can't leave until the last out is made same thing with a dead show until they turn the lights on you just never know and even after they turn the lights on you just don't ever know and 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 we were we got up we were like this is this is uh, uh this is sad this is no good luckily Sol- soldier field was large enough that before we could you know get ourselves all the way out of there uh Phil had this wonderful idea that like this is not the way to end a tour. There's got to be a happier way to go out, and he pushed for the uh, box of rain, which unfortunately turned out to be very you know very prophetic for him, as uh, Jerry only lasted another month and then was gone. Um, but yeah, that
2: Larry, I've got it. I've, I've got I've got some inside Grateful Dead questions for you because you seem like a man who knows an awful lot about this subject. And Rob, if you do, I'd love you to contribute as well too here. So. My first question is, the word in the parking lot for years was that, that the last tour, that you would know that the last tour was coming because they'd play Unbroken Chain, which they'd never played, right? And that there would be this sort of, that it would be the clue to all of us that we, were sh- we should enjoy what's coming down the pike. And, of course, in 95, they break out Unbroken True. Chain,
1: but they broke it out in the spring tour. They broke it out in March, so... Uh,
2: well, but still, I mean, that's six months prior, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be the last song played, right? So.
1: Well, I know the, the excuse for years was that it was too complicated a song and they'd all have to relearn it because the parts were so difficult, so no one wanted to relearn the song. But, uh, but uh, when they first broke it out, I was skiing in Alaska, Alex. Yeah. I had someone track me down at the house I was staying in. The phone rings, some, the person whose house it was passed me the phone and said, it's for you. And I get on. It's so a buddy of mine going. They just played "Unbroken Chain." Are you flying home? And I'm like, no, I'm not <laughs> flying home. I'm I'm skiing in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So so I'm not the only one that heard that, right? I mean, that was a that was a that was a conversation we all had back in the day, right? I'm I'm not making that up, correct?
0: Can't say that I heard that one speci- specifically. For, in, in my day, it was Cosmic Charlie, and and before you'd go into the show. They would pass out little flyers that had the lyrics for Cosmic Charlie printed on it so that when they broke it out that night, you'd be able to sing Cosmic Charlie with them. And, and I probably got about 20 of those stuffed into my, an old pair of blue jeans somewhere. But, you know, to me, the, the, the idea is I like to think at least that Jerry didn't know that it was the last show, right? That, that he maybe, yeah. maybe somehow internally, if he knew, Phil knew, I don't know. But um, and, and we've had this conversation a lot on our show just because of how sad it is and what you know what led up to that where you know jerry just his, his body gave out on him and and you know here we are announcing the fish tour and you know the fish guys are the same age you know jerry was when he died and uh you know the fact that there's so much more live fish still to go see is wonderful and how great it would have been to get another 10 years of of, of really killer grateful dead uh uh just any grateful dead i suppose but um uh, yeah, you know, look, they played. And I, I just love the fact that you know, over time, Phil felt, felt more and more comfortable to, uh, you know, to do that. I was there in '83, and it's funny you mentioned uh, get on a plane and fly home. I was at the uh, Madison Square Garden show in '83 when they broke out Saint Stephen, and a whole bunch of us called back Dan Arbor to tell everybody. And sure enough, the next night, like five guys flew out in anticipation of. What are they going to do next? Uh, the, the big highlight of the night was that they, they broke out revolution for the encore at the end of the show. But if they, they opened the show with cold rain and snow and almost without recognizing what was going on at the very end, when they do the out in the cold rain and snow over and over and over, Phil stepped up and sang with Bobby on his microphone. And people were talking about, this is the first time Phil Lesh is singing into a microphone in 10 years, 15 years. It's unbelievable. You know, Box of Rain is just around the corner. It took three more years, but I was at Hampton in 86 and they broke out Box of Rain. And, you know, it. it then eventually he got around to, to Pride of Cucamonga and um, uh, Unbroken Chain. And, you know, I mean, he's uh, he, was, he was a masterful guy and his tunes were great. And, you know, I was happy to get him when we could.
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, this is a, this is slightly off topic, but you were, you were but it's not. You, you were talking about it would be good to get another ten years or or whatever you could get of, of dead music, and I have to say that one of the biggest surprises of my life was uh, on the night of the day of the dead in whatever year that the that, that dead and company started, 2013 maybe was that the year that they that they.
1: A little later, 15 was the first 15 year.
2: 15 was the first year?
1: Yeah, it was fall 15.
2: So I had not gone to the Fairly Well shows in Chicago because I had seen sort of iterations of, uh, of the dead over the years, and it just didn't have the, didn't have the juice. And a friend of mine uh, had a box at the garden, and it was the weekend of my birthday, and he said, you know, you got to come up and, and just say goodbye, if nothing else, right? I mean, put this to bed. I, I had, when Jerry died, I was away somewhere. I mean I was off in some, you know, godforsaken hole somewhere so I missed that. Uh, all of a sudden I came back and this 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 thing that had been relevant in my life for from you know the time I was at summer camp all of a sudden had ceased. And so I didn't have any sort of closure. And so I thought, great, that's fine. I'll go up to... to, I'll fly up to New York for the weekend. I'll go to the Day of the Dead as an appropriate night to do it at the Garden, which was where I had ultimately seen my first show, whatever it was, 35 years before or something. And uh, when John Mayer had the balls to come out and play Bertha, either as the first or second show... I mean, first or second song of the first set of that show, about three minutes into that Bertha... There was an audible gasp in the garden. I've never experienced anything like it, actually. It was as if the 18,000 people who were all... There were no hangers-on in this crowd, right? It was the Bill Walton deadhead crowd that had gathered. Uh, And this audible gasp of surprise that the music was awake again. And it wasn't John Mayer playing a Jerry tune it was a version of the dead playing bertha and it was an extraordinary thing i mean i've never seen an arena go as bananas as as we all did in that moment and the great surprise of life was that that this thing that had had ceased had reawakened and uh... what a glorious thing and unexpected life is full of expected things the unexpected things are usually pretty crappy um, and this was a this was a spectacular one, so it makes me very pleased to be a lifelong deadhead. Ties me to the, the potential for rebirth.
1: The amazing part about it, Alex, is that six years ago, when uh, they were putting Dead and Company together, if you told me six years later this lineup would still be together, when you saw all the other lineups, whether it was you know the other ones or further or any of the other things that have been you know the short term, let's try it out and see how it goes. I mean, this lineup has worked. It's, it's uh, not just John Mayer, but it's O'Teele. It's the whole crew. Those guys are playing together. You know, Rob, Rob Chimente, uh, or excuse me, Jeff, Jeff Chimente, Uh that whole group has just put together a fantastic lineup that, you know, is in sync with one another. And you think about how many shows they've actually played with one another now. You know, they're in the hundreds, which is, uh, which is you know, pretty amazing that you've got something that is now resonating with, you know, um, people that are your son's age that are, you know, rabid deadheads as a result.
2: Rabid. Rabid. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll tell you. I think that um, since we're since we're now on this topic, that uh, that for years there was a fundamental mistake, and the mistake was how do we replace Jerry, who is irreplaceable, and Bobby Weir. I don't know him personally, other than through proximity, right? <laughs> so I feel like I know him very well, even though I don't know him at all. Um, he must have had to go down a very deep, dark hole and then climb out of it and figure out that the person who needed replacing, so to speak, was not Jerry, but himself, that he was no, right? that he was no longer going to be a viable, handsome frontman, that he needed to move over to Jerry's side of the stage and take up the orchestration. And I feel like some of the versions of the the the, the you know the the fairly the, the fairly well groupings and others, as much as I love Phil Lesh, who I do and am a huge admirer of his for many many reasons, I feel like there was perhaps some tension between who is going to take the orchestration in the in between spaces, um, and that if you've got too many chefs in the kitchen, it doesn't work, and that. It seemed to me, watching Bob Weir in his relationship on stage to the younger guys, that he was bringing them along uh, in the way that Jerry brought the rest of them along way back in the day. Uh, now, you can't do that if the people participating aren't brilliant in their own right, right? I mean, it's not like teaching kindergarten kids. But there's a, there's a, certain, there's a certain language that's required to be able to have that kind of improvisational chops um, and the, the building inside of a single song, multiple run songs, or just in the noodle where you can go from rest to explosion and how you build that through the lyrics, how you build it through the guitars, how the rhythm section builds it. Um, and so my hat is really off to him. I feel like he he's, ends up in a world of extremely interesting people, being one of the most interesting, not just for his successes, but for what must have been a very painful in-between time and figuring out how to get out of that and back to the place where he's blowing all of our minds again.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's really nicely said, Alex. And you know, For, you know, those of us that are a little bit older, maybe, or, you know, who are, you know, the really hardcore Jerry heads and, you know, I, my line used to be on any given night. I was just as happy to see the Jerry Garcia band as I was to see the Grateful Dead. Um, And it's taken a long time. I'll admit, you know, even Fair Thee Well was wonderful. I love Trey. I thought Trey did a good job. Uh, but you know, it, it was, it was the ability of the musicians to always interact in a way that, you know, where we knew in the audience that they were interacting. Uh, and it just, it was always so cool the way they did it. And one of the things that I admire about John Mayer, cause I, and I will admit prior to his involvement with that and company, I, I was not a John Mayer fan. I wasn't anti John Mayer. I just, I wasn't a, a John Mayer fan. And I always kind of thought of him as just more pop and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, But what I've, what has really impressed me is the dedication that he's brought to what he sees himself doing. And I don't disagree with what you say about Bob doing the orchestration, but I think that John has really, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to sound note for note, like Jerry. He wants to be able to play uniquely, but in a style similar to the way Jerry played. And, and you can really hear that in in the way he approaches it and the way he, he, he leads certain songs. Althea, of course, clearly one of his favorites. And when he plays that song, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful version of the tune. And you're right. Once you accept the fact that, hey, this is still just the Grateful Dead in whatever form, form formulation you want to call it, it's a wonderful experience. And when you're with your friends and when you're out there and all the old feelings come back and it's absolutely tremendous and I love it. And then I go home and I put on Jerry because I have to hear him after all of that just to hear Jerry.
2: Yeah, it's not. Um, they're not the same. No. Uh, for for obviously, um, and 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 I too am a big Jerry head. I saw you know the shows that he did at the Ludfontaine on Broadway, and you know I uh, the the biggest difference musically, I think between the chops of of Jerry and what he brought as an undercurrent, and what John Mayer brings as an undercurrent is I feel like Jerry had because of his influence from the banjo, more of a bluegrass um, undercurrent, and that John Mayer has more of a blues undercurrent. And so a song like Althea, for example, works particularly well for that, whereas a song like Stagger Lee, for example, works much better for Jerry.
0: Yes, I agree.
2: But in a different way, right? I mean, better is a screwy metric here. It's all fucking, it's all good.
0: I understand what you're saying. Rob, you had a point to make.
1: I was just going to say, it was a great segue of uh, of Alex's of talking about you know being surrounded by a world of interesting artists, and interesting people. <laughs> you know, I, I know that the um, the Grateful Dead was a big influence on on your art, but I'm also curious to know that you know you were largely raised by some of the more interesting characters that ran around New York City in the late '70s and early '80s, whether it was your uncle Peter or whether it was uh, you know uh, Truman Capote or Andy Warhol and uh, all the folks that kind of Peter surrounded himself with. I was just wondering what kind of influence that had on your artistic life and, you know, uh, the influence that the Grateful Dead and others had as well to kind of get you to where you are today uh, and turning into the artist you've become.
2: Well, um, it is true that I grew up in New York City in the 1970s. It is also true that my Uncle Peter, Peter Beard, the photographer and liver of life, uh, was, was a, a, a big influence on me. He was... When he wasn't in Africa, um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with him, he was primarily a a, a photographer of wildlife and and beauty, models subsequently. But uh, his greatest work, in my mind, was the work that he did in the 1960s and early 70s in Africa of the elephants and crocodiles, etc. And when he wasn't in Africa, he was living on our sofa uh, on the Upper East Side. And so, um, so I was one of those kids who went to Studio 54 in the 70s. Uh, and when I say one of those kids, maybe there were three or four of us, the Von Furstenberg kids, uh, Jade Jagger, um, Jennifer Rubel, and me. Uh, the and normal not crowd. Yeah, the normal crowd. Well, you know, look, somebody's got to be them, so it might as well be me. Why not? Uh, I'd come home from school, yeah, and Andy Warhol might be sitting in the living room, and, and uh, in fact, I've got in my studio a, portrait of, a, a photographic portrait that he took of me when I was a little kid and Truman Capote as well. My mother always talks about how he would call the house, and he'd say, hi, this is Truman, and my mother would say, well, who else could it possibly be, <laughs> <Right>? So, <laughs> um, and, and so now, what did I learn from them? Uh, I'd like to also say that my father um, worked in public service and was on Bobby Kennedy's staff, and and I uh, started something called the Jefferson Awards, which are, uh, I, I believe they could be considered America's preeminent public service awards, given to those who, who truly are selfless. And so I got equal measure from all of that perspective that you can do original things and succeed at it. So what I was learning was not how do you draw a line, but rather how do you think big and then, uh, and then, and then, and realize your dreams, not following a path that anybody else has walked, and so that that is a possible destination. It's a possible life goal that if you're uh, if you have the confidence, not necessarily the you don't need to be a you don't need to be Mozart, right? I mean, you don't need to be playing for the for the, the, the Austro-Hungarian kings when you're six. You don't need to be a prodigy. But you need to be impassioned about what you do, whether it's public service or it's art or it's writing or, or it's music. And that if you set a path for which there is no back door, right? It wasn't that I was either going to be an artist or a banker. It was that I was going to be an artist and that as a result I had to figure it out. And the way to figure it out was to do it every day. And I don't think that's all that dissimilar from the dead, frankly. How do you go from being the house band for the acid tests to being what we've all known? By playing every day. You know, how do you get to be Jerry Garcia? Not just by showing up five minutes before soundcheck, but by spending the day there learning how all the equipment works, and then six hours in your room picking the banjo. And it's not just, that's not just practice. That's love for the thing that you do. And so I learned as a child by looking at, you know, these are all people that, that we've all heard of, but I didn't look at them as famous people. I looked at them as people who were doing interesting things in unique ways, and that they were always telling me that you could be anything. It's the great American dream, right? It's not just, a phil- it's not just a, an economic dream that we lead in the United States. It's, a, it's, a, it's the ability to follow your dream.
0: So I have to jump in here, Alex, because I do now. My, my brain doesn't work as fast as it used to. And I do remember Rob mentioning this uh, in, in the lead-up to this week's show that uh, uh, your childhood was very unique in terms of the types of uh, people you were exposed to. And one of the names he threw out, and I'm going to throw it out, and if I'm wrong, then I forgive me, but Lou Reed?
2: Peripherally at best. Okay. I don't think that Lou Reed was ever around my mother's dining room table. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, that whole Velvet Underground scene was very much a part of it. And my biggest connection to Lou Reed would be, are you, do you remember uh, Candy Darling? Do you know who I'm talking about? Hmm. So Can- she, Can-
1: she's referenced in "Walk on the Wild Side" as one of the uh, the members of the Factory. I mean, that whole song was written about uh, different different characters that were in the Factory are all referenced in that song, and all of them you know are pretty true to form of who they represented. But yes,
2: okay. So so and she, so Candy Candy Darling, I don't know what the what the current title for for someone of her of um, <laughs> her choices are, but she was a transvestite, and. Um, and, she, and I had, when I was little, I had two governesses. One was an old German governess named Mrs. Schaller, and the other was Candy Darling. And the two of them... Now, this is when I was little. When I got to be a little older, um, I had a, an Irish nanny who lived with us, which is not Candy Darling, uh, named Stella, but that's beside the point. And so Mrs. Schaller was one of these real traditional... You know, push the pram kind of thing, right? And Candy Darling was not. And Mrs. Schaller could never quite figure out uh, what exactly Candy Darling was, <laughs> to be honest. And so I grew up from the, from literally from the cradle, with this, with the dynamics of the oddity of the world in which we live at play. And it's always, it's always given me a sort of a you know a wink and a nudge to the world that uh you know sometimes mrs is in the room and sometimes it's candy darling larry i've got to say this would
1: all make more sense to you if you knew alex's mother pat (laughs) it would would all come into focus but that is i never knew that alex that is so perfect for uh for, for who the two choices would be that's lovely Oh, that's so good. I love that story. That's wonderful. (laughs) Wow.
0: Okay.
2: So I'll give you, I'll give you an Andy Warhol story if you'd like as well. You're asking about things that, um, that these people taught me. So, um, this was not once again, uh, this is how you draw a line, but rather, um, talking about, about granny Pat, right. About my mother. Um, you know, I now have children, so she's granny Pat, not just Pat. Um, and we had a round, uh, marble dining room table and, this was in the time when people still had dinner parties, and dinner parties still had place cards. And my mother would invariably have a friend, you know, Mrs. Havicamp or McGillicuddy or whatever, right, somebody who was very social, who was eager to sit next to Andy Warhol. And so they would say, please put me next to Andy. And so my mother would, and then she would tell me, she'd say, I want you to watch at dinner tonight. Now, I wasn't sitting at the table. I was in my, you know, footed pajamas, age six, you know, going around shaking everybody's hand and bowing before I went to bed, like one did back in the day, when we all had a little civility in our lives, God forbid. Uh, and so she said, I want you just to watch the interaction between Andy and, and you know, and the, the woman sitting next to him. And the way that it would work was is this. So they would sit down, And the woman would say, hi, my name is Mrs. McGillicuddy. And and he would say, nice to meet you. My name is Andy. Um, And then he would say, so tell me about yourself. And she'd start to talk. And she would say, oh, you know, I'm from such and such, and I do such and such, and whatever, whatever, whatever. And he would nod his head, and he'd say, "Uh uh-huh. So interesting. Uh Uh-huh. And then, and, and he would never respond. And then there would be an awkward moment of silence, And then Mrs. McGillicuddy would keep talking to fill the silence. And so by the end of the dinner, Andy would know everything about this person. I mean, from from over generations, right? I mean, he would know your entire CV. And that woman wouldn't know a single thing more about him than when she sat down in the first place. And of course, invariably, she would then say to my mother, God, Andy is such a nice man. Now, that to me is, is a great life lesson, right? It's, it goes a little bit back to that sort of Carnegie, how to make friends and influence people kind of thing. Be interested in the other people around you. And not just for Machiavellian purpose, but people are interested in what they're interested in. And if you're interested in what they're interested in, they'll be much more open and friendly towards you. Um, now, Andy used it much more like a racket, um, because he was quite Machiavellian. In fact, he used to do this thing with Truman Capote where they would line up these society folks, women mostly. And know this all sounds rather misogynistic and it's not intended to. Um, uh, and they would say, okay, these are ten wealthy women who are really impressed by Andy Warhol and um, and we can do... and Andy will do a portrait of them. But... He's not going to ask. He's not going to be the person that's going to start that conversation. So Truman would call them and say, Oh, Andy just loves you. He is so interested in you. And he would love to paint your portrait. But he is so shy. And then the woman would say, Oh, well, that's great. I would love Andy to paint my portrait. And they'd line up 10 of these things for 50 grand a pop or whatever, right? And then he would just go. He would do the su- the suite of portraits. Everybody would have their portrait. They'd all be delighted. And he and you know he and Truman would head off to the south of France or whatever the hell they were going to go do. So you know there's a, you can use it for for manipulative purpose, but but uh, but that's not its intent if you do it right.
1: Understood. Well, wow. okay.
2: So, so, Alex, how do uh, people
1: find your artwork these days? What's the best way to, uh, to look up your gallery when they come to New Orleans? What's the best way to come find you?
2: Well, that's two different questions. They find my artwork so far, they like it enough that I'm still able to do it. So <laughs> that's the, uh, how do they physically find me? Uh, I'm quite easy to be found. If you go online and type in Alex Beard, everything that comes up will be me. With the exception of one thing, I believe, which was an English guy named Alex who shaved his beard, <laughs> um, which is not me. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know, there's Instagram and Facebook and all of the social media channels that one would follow. And 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 I'm not telling you what kind of eggs I like for breakfast, but rather, as I make artwork in the studio. Uh, We post it so people can see the works in progress, so the people that are interested in kinds of series can see the work as it's coming along. Um, I do conservation work in Africa, which we haven't really spoken about at all yet, which is fine, Um, but so that also filters its way into uh, my online presence, as in when I go off to East Africa to go track elephants on camel safari, I'll, I'll post the art that I make and and, uh, uh, and like that, and on my website. And then in New Orleans, um, I have a gallery, which is uh, uh, my studio and, uh, and a gallery, you know, uh, on Magazine Street, uptown, which is outward-facing. I'm not a monkey on a grinder, but I also don't think that, uh, that nobody can see the process. So there's a line between being a craftsman, as in somebody who's at a glass-blowing factory where you go watch a a demonstration, which is interesting, but not what I do, Um, and being so secretive that nobody ever gets to see what you make. I like to know the people who are interested in the work that I make, and so all of you people out there in the world, and many of you, I'm sure, will come to New Orleans. I hope you'll come and visit me. I'd be delighted to meet you.
1: Wonderful. Okay i'm in yeah come on any uh any new children's books in the works i know you've got a handful of children's books as well
2: i did I've, i've written a uh a collection of books called tales from the watering hole and they're parables i write them for children but they're really intended for their parents um and the the last book that i wrote was called the lying king which i wrote um right after trump was inaugurated actually i i was listening to the uh I was listening to Kellyanne Conway's live interview about alternative facts, and I and I said, "Fuck that!" I, I was raised to believe that lying is verboten. The one thing that you have is your integrity, and uh, and that history teaches us that there is no good version of a liar. Eventually, they all get caught, um, and. So I wrote, you know, a book about what happens to a warthog who ascends to the throne on the backs of his lies. Uh, But it's not a Trump book. It's a truism. Lying doesn't get you where you want to go, even if sometimes it seems like it in the midst of it. So that's the most recent one that I've written.
0: A Um, parable for our times, for sure.
2: Yeah, man. I found this last year to be difficult to write uh, anything because everything was so... Infused with the pandemic, that anything that you wrote specifically about the pandemic, unless you're like Michael Lewis writing the history of the response to the pandemic, that anything written in that time would be so filtered with something that would be dated almost immediately that I found it difficult to get out of my own way and write something which is a greater truism that could be true 20 years ago and 20 years from now. And those are the things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in more like. Aesop. Well, speaking
1: of politics, um, you know, Chuck Schumer's come out in the last week and once again said that he is going to uh, make sure by this time next year that cannabis has been decriminalized at a federal level. I'm, uh, I'm not as convinced. You know, we've had this conversation a little bit, but it's always interesting when um, you know, the, the leader of the, uh, the Senate comes out and very overtly says that they're going to change cannabis laws in this country. Uh, Larry, I'm not sure if you watched anything that that Chuck had to say and your thoughts on it, but I I think that timeline still seems a bit accelerated based on the composition of the Senate as we see it today. Any thoughts there? You know, look, you're absolutely right. The good news is that somebody's talking about
0: it, and they're talking about it openly, and they're talking about it um, with the intent that it's something they would like to accomplish. That's, That's a breath of fresh air after what we saw for the last four years in terms of what people were willing to do with marijuana bills. However, at the same time that we hear Chuck Schumer saying this, we also hear Mitch McConnell saying that once again, as he did a few years ago with Barack Obama, he's now making it his life's mission to make sure that nothing that the Democrats want to do, especially Biden, can be accomplished and they're going to be obstructionists all the way through. Unfortunately, even though we've talked about the fact that we all know many Republicans who like to smoke marijuana and uh, one, one red state after another, Alabama just did it, uh, starts to approve either medical or adult use marijuana. Um, a lot of the politicians just still can't get out of the way and whether it's because they, they are anti-marijuana or for, uh, in the case of McConnell, I think that's probably just more a partisanship and, and gamesmanship that he's playing. But unfortunately, it has an impact on the rest of us who would like to see federal legalization take place. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's part of the conversation. Certainly, I have to think that if a bill shows up on President Biden's desk, that he would be inclined to sign it, even though he, you know, kind of shocked everyone when he said he did not want anybody with a marijuana history working on his staff. So I think it's really kind of a complicated issue on the federal level. Um, and as I know Jim Marty is very fond of saying, uh, you know, for those of us in the industry, that's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, as long as it keeps you know the, the R.J. Reynolds of the world out and lets uh, the rest of us have some fun and play in this industry for a while before uh, we kind of turn that corner. It will happen. I think it'll happen uh, sometime during the Biden administration, because as more and more red states come online, uh, we're just going to see a, 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 such a large mass of support that it's going to be impossible to ignore.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, if you, if you look at what we've seen in the earnings reports in the last week coming out of uh, Wall Street, uh, Leaf reported earnings uh, this week, and for the first time ever, they're showing a run rate of north of a billion dollars in sales uh, on an annual basis, uh, Gti reported yesterday, and they showed 280 million dollars in uh, in the most recent quarter. So again, you know, you're tracking north of a billion. Uh, True have announced the acquisition of Harvest uh, a couple days ago in a 2.1 billion dollar blockbuster deal that you know, obviously is going to take some time before it gets through. Hart Scott Rodino uh, passes through the Treasury Department, but uh, you're now talking about businesses that you know take RJR out of the mix. By the time legalization happens, these companies are going to be behemoths so by any measure of any industry. So, you know, legalization or not, we are now marching towards, you know, a handful of companies that are um, truly that large, and there's a handful of other ones behind them that are still in the process of making acquisitions. You know, there's a, you know, seven or eight that are kind of like the mid-tier MSOs that are north of a billion-dollar market cap today, but when they report at this time next year and you see how much progress they've made just in expansion and all the capex they've been putting in and all the acquisitions they've made over the last year, these companies are going to be uh, you know, north of three or four billion dollars of, of market cap at this time next year. I mean, th- where they are today is, is not priced into where they're going to be in the market. So um, we, we still have a, a long way to grow. And I think for those companies, to your point, they're delighted to see illegality for at least a period of time more, um, because right now they've got no problems accessing institutional capital and relatively inexpensively. You saw GTI do a, a sub eight uh, percent debt deal recently. You saw. Um, uh, Verano come out with a 9.75% note a couple days ago, so the days of really exp- really expensive capital on the debt side are pretty much over, and now you're watching institutional groups north of the border come in and support U.S. companies at a much, much lower price than they were before as far as what they're paying on a coupon. Well,
0: that is your area of expertise, and I deferred you on all of it, but i, I you know i 've heard of the large numbers and i 've seen what 's going on and it, it is absolutely amazing and you 're right I think uh, that, that I, sh- I should not be so quick to underestimate uh the powers that be in this industry and, and then the ones that have started down that road and and others that are heading in that direction um, You know whether it's maybe it's maybe it's just irrational on fear on my part, but I'm still you know kind of old enough to put RJR and you know IBM and a few of those in like their own little special category of you know companies that run the world and you know could really do anything they want if they really want to. but nevertheless, uh, the point you're making is a valid point, which is that you know the people in this industry aren't sitting around waiting for RJR.. They're going out and creating their own behemoths, and uh, you know, if they can do it within the industry and do it within the rules and you know continue to deliver good quality product at a reasonable price, God bless them all.
2: You know, Larry, uh, this is obviously not my expertise, but I would say that I would think that the tipping point for this will not be the large cannabis companies or RJR a company like that wanting to get involved, but rather the credit card companies and the banks. That when you start having enough retail business that 3% on an American Express card for billions of dollars of transactions a year, that's a lot of money that's going through the state of Delaware where home home base to Joe Biden, right? Uh
0: yeah, look. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely correct, and and ultimately we'll take that. But that kind of puts us in the catch twenty two, right? Because in order for the banks and the credit card companies to be able to dive in, it has to be made legal. They have to take it off the well, of schedule one. But so but it, that's it's,
2: but that's my point, which is that if you were a lobbyist at this point for you know for Visa. I think that you you would be on Capitol Hill right now saying legalize it and let us run these transactions through our bank debit cards.
0: Well, and, and of course, the most frustrating part about that is during the prior administration, the the, the Democratic-controlled House did in fact pass. Banking regulations that would have allowed that, and they could never get it out of committee at the Senate, and you know McConnell refused to bring it to the floor for a vote, and it died. So yes, uh, I you know I absolutely agree that that uh, with the support of the financial institutions and the credit card companies, uh, that will help uh, give it the uh, the the mainstream support and appeal uh, that it needs to go in that direction. And yeah, that I mean that will be. Uh, uh, a change of proportions that, you know, I certainly am not capable of imagining. Uh, you know, once people are freed from this burden of having to deal with large amounts of cash and can really, uh, you know, just dive into this as they would any other business. Uh, and once that happens, I, you know, I don't think we've begun to see
1: what the true upside of this industry can be. Well, the, the, other, the other tipping point, Alex, also is, uh, you know, when you start seeing governors like Kay Ivey and Tate Reeves and your governor in Louisiana, you know, start making moves towards legalization. Uh, politically, when you've got states that are considered to be as far red as those states are, uh, making overtures, eventually, you know, even in the Senate, McConnell and the others that are obstructionists have to move when they know that the states that um, you know, support them are, are now uh, moving towards legalization as well. So I think the tipping point in my mind is once we see you know, the New York uh, law get officially passed, once we see Virginia, once we see Florida go adult use, at that point, you know, the, the major population states are done. So it's, it's only a question of time. I don't think that's going to be that long. I, mean, I think Larry's a bit more optimistic than I am on the timeline on a federal level. But as long as the 14th Amendment plays itself out and federalism continues to work as, as we expect it to, and so long as we've got Merrick Garland running the Justice Department, I, I think we've got very little to, uh, to fear at this point in the way of enforcement. And I think the canvas will remain the lowest priority in, you know, in law enforcement. So as long as we can move forward uh, with an industry that, that is tracking the way it is, then by the time legalization happens, the book has largely been written.
0: Well, and Robert, you know, to your point on that, that's an excellent point about enforcement. But the truth is, I think we're there, and the reason is because we just survived a, a four-year administration with two different attorneys general, both of whom uh, wanted nothing to do with the cannabis industry, and and you know were, were were opponents against it in their own ways. And yet, not once did we see. In fact, the Obama administration, Justice Department, prior to the Cole memorandum, wound up uh, it was tougher. Yeah, much tougher. And, uh, and you know, uh, this takes us right to the, the magical night uh, uh, when California went legal and Jeff Sessions comes out and says, we are hereby revoking the coal memorandum. And everybody panicked. And of course, we all said, what do you mean you're revoking? Why? You could have gone into the States anytime you wanted. That's what you're saying is is, is a non sequitur. And, and he, he did revoke the coal memorandum and still never raised a finger, never suggested he was going to do it, never came close to doing it.
1: It was great saber-rattling that led to good interviews for me with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Other than that, nothing happened. Exactly, right. Exactly,
0: exactly. Inquiring minds wanted to know, and, and that was really the end of it. And, and I, you know, if we can get through that administration uh, without anybody, uh, you know, trying to step in and rattle the industry, then to me that's a pretty good sign that the folks in Washington know it's here to stay. There's just a lot of window dressing that still has to be put on it, you know. And the real question is which politician is willing to to, to step over there, and you know, and, and to step on the, uh, uh, you know, the theoretical third rail, if you will and absorb the shock or whatever backlash you're going to get from being the guy who says
1: it's time. Well, until all that happens, I think my best advice to our audience is smoke more weed, enjoy nature more, get out, play, do fun things, enjoy Alex Beard's art, enjoy other art in the world. And, uh, you know, disregard what's happening at a political level and in favor of trying to enjoy life a bit more. And you forgot the most
0: important thing, which is last tomorrow night, make sure you download that show from Lil France and, and play it from start to finish. Whether you're in the studio creating art or you're in your living room creating art, you know, by the way you're moving around, even though nobody else would think it was art. My kids sure don't.
2: Uh, <laughs> since this is, um, since we started with The Grateful Dead, uh, I'll end with The Grateful Dead. It seems to me that for all of the beauty, um, that surrounded all of those shows and the music and the scene, et cetera, there was also always a dark side, right? You know, there was not... And I don't just mean the obvious stuff, pigped dying and Brett Midland dying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But rather, you know, you'd go to a show and, and you'd be surrounded by people sticking roses in your hair, and the next thing you know, you turn a corner, and there's a hardcore group of folks that would really, you know... Have the, have the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And I just think that's life. I don't think you get one without the other.
1: But, but I learned I learned more from those people, Alex, than almost anyone else in the world.
2: I'm not saying get rid of them, right? That's the, that's the point. I'm saying that they exist and as a result need to be embraced. Now... You know, does that mean that you need to go and disappear into the South Carolina woods, eat a whole bunch of acid, and start playing an electric guitar in a discordant way? Why not? To make the <laughs> raccoons go crazy? Maybe not, but, <laughs> but maybe so, right? I mean, there's, there's, there, there should be room for the dark and the light, because it's there whether we want it to be or not. Uh, so if you want a full picture of the universe in which you navigate, uh, don't forget that they're both there. Uh, and then you won't be surprised.
0: Well, I think you're right. And, you know, and, uh, you know, Robert Hunter was right on top of it, talking about, you know, springing from night into the sun. And, and you know, you really do. You see the dark, you see the light. And, you know, there were definitely nights at a dead show when it, whatever uh, uh, refreshments I had taken that evening, you know, kind of took me to a different place. And if you were walking down the wrong corridor at the wrong time, you could pick up a vibe that was, you know, not really the vibe you were looking for, but yet it was always part of the undercurrent of what was going on there. And I think when you read the electric Kool-Aid acid test, you know, Tom Wolf picks up on a lot of that and and, and all the various vibes that were going on that made up the greater whole that they were experiencing. And you do realize it, it's it's like anything in life. You know, you can't have your, you know, your, your light without your dark, and you know, your, uh, I won't be able to say any of the others, right? But, you know, everything balances in life, and, and uh, that's a very good observation. I like that.
2: Well, well, sometimes the light's all shining on me, and other times you can barely see.
0: Amen, brother. And I just have to say really quickly, before we before we jump off, uh, you really got me with that story about summer camp when you started, and I, <laughs> and I have to tell you for two reasons. One, because when I, I grew up, exactly the opposite of you. I grew up in a very very white conservative, you know, upper middle class household in St. Louis where, you know, we talked about whatever my dad decided we were going to talk about. And I love my father, but it wasn't anything at all like the kind of stuff you talked about. And there's not a single <laughs> record in my father's collection. I was just home recently and checked again. Nothing that if he said take any album you want that I would grab it and say, "Well, I'm going to go listen to this." So I went off to camp in Wisconsin, a, a Jewish day, a Jewish summer camp up there, and that's where I discovered Neil Young. And discovering yeah. Neil Young really kind of turned me away from the REO speed speedwagons of the world and into, uh, you know, the, the the music that I've I've kind of come to grow into and love. But just to make sure I wasn't the odd man out, when I, my son, I have three boys and they're all now more or less into the dead, but at the time they weren't because their father made them listen to it all the time and they didn't like any of that. And they liked stuff like the fray or whatever it was. And my oldest son went up to summer camp and he had a counselor who every night before they went to bed played Farmhouse, the, the fish tune on acoustic guitar for them, and he came home, and all of a sudden, my son was a fish head, wanted nothing to do with anything except fish, so Rabbi Minkus, if you're out there somewhere, thank you very much. You've done us all good, <laughs> and uh, you've, you've created a whole new generation of, uh, of of music fans, and we love you for it, but th- that that was a great story. It really struck a chord with me.
2: Yeah, right on. Well, nothing better than uh, sun coming up over Great Moose Lake through the fog, and Jerry wailing on a fire on the mountain. <laughs> it set me on the right path.
1: Except for maybe a three three piece band on the corner playing near my God to thee. Ah, uh, and he
0: brings it back to staggerly to round out the show. Very nicely done. Very nicely done,
2: gentlemen. I've enjoyed this very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you,
1: Alex. Thanks for coming,
0: man. Yeah, this is this has really been a special show for us. And uh, but seriously, uh, thank you very much again, Rob. As always, man, great show. Um, Love the guests you bring on. Love the conversation, and uh, we'll have to talk more about hooking up on this fish tour.
1: Absolutely, Larry, and definitely talk more about hooking up in uh, New Orleans for Jazz Fest as well. So, thanks, Alex.
2: Yeah, everybody, come down, come down in October. We'll, we've got uh, you know crawfish bread and the dead and yep, co on the fairgrounds.
1: Barbecued oysters at Giacomo's. So uh, we'll see you. We'll see you in October, if not before. Alex, safe travels and all the adventures you're going on this summer. And uh, can't wait to see you, um, you know, when I get the chance to see you. But uh, Rob Hunt from Southern California and Linnea Holdings signing off. Um, thanks so much for another great week.
2: Thank you.
0: Everyone, thank you so much for listening to our show. Alex Beard was a great guest. Uh, we will be back next week with lots more exciting stuff to talk about. As always, uh, please continue to listen to our show. We appreciate all of your support. And enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you, everyone.